This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. Whatever happens with value-based care, population, uh, health, uh, Medicare for all or whatever, um, we have to be prepared. And as you said, consolidation is happening among all the large hospital systems and all the payers. And historically, physicians have not uh, consolidated uh, or not of their own free will. So we really think that in order to maintain the numeric scale, to have some leverage and clout, uh, and get the data um, and the infrastructure to participate in large-scale programs with, with larger payers, you really need to plan now for when these things happen five to 10 years from now. Hello, and welcome to Gastro Broadcast. I'm your host, Dr. Fred Rosenberg. With me today is my good friend, Dr. Mike Drugutsky. Dr. Drugutsky is former president of Gastro One and currently chairman of the board of One GI, a physician-centric MSO with practices in five states. He is also very active in his community, serving as a board member of the Memphis Brooks Museum of Art, Goodwill Homes Community Service, and Temple Israel. Dr. Drukutsky is the founder and managing partner of Cornerstone Cellars, a critically acclaimed winery in Napa Valley, California. Having personally enjoyed more than a few varieties of his fine wines, Mike will get no argument from me in his belief that red wine improves gut health. Dr. Drukutsky, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Uh, thanks, Fred, and thanks so much for having me on your show. Our pleasure. Let's give, begin by talking about how you chose a career path in medicine and then decided to become a gastroenterologist. Yeah. Well, I've always wanted to be a doctor. Uh, when I was five years old and kids wanted to be a fireman, a policeman, I always said doctor and it never changed. So I guess that may have been my sole intention way back when. But gastroenterology uh, didn't really know what specialty I wanted to go in until medical school, actually. Um, uh, I attended Texas A&M, and we had a visiting professor by the name of Thomas Almy, who was a renowned gastroenterologist from Dartmouth. Uh, I think he was the president of the AGA when I was uh, 11 years old or something like that. So he was invited, and I was chosen to present a case, and it was a GI case. It was a patient with Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. So. Uh, it was sort of stumped the visiting professor. So I did all the research on it, and especially the pathophysiology, and I really liked the subject matter. And uh, that was a big part of me choosing to become a gastroenterologist. The other thing was that I think people go into specialties that they've had some personal uh, dealings with. So when I was a kid, I've been, I've been blessed with good health, but I was a kid, I had two medical issues. Number one, had a bunch of broken bones. Uh, my orthopedist uh, diagnosed me as being a klutz. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and I had some mild irritable bowel syndrome. So I guess having a little bit of a GI issue uh, and uh, this uh, fabulous visiting professor uh, piqued my interest in GI. It's so funny that you mentioned uh, your presentation was a case of Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. I went to medical school at Ohio State where Dr. Zollinger 
was a chief of surgery. And uh, his grand rounds were always interesting. (laughs) The patients would show up for the presentation and never wanted to leave when the discussion would start. I bet that. That's great. (laughs) How did you end up in private practice? Well, I, I moved to Memphis to do my internship residency and stayed here for my fellowship. And then when I finished my fellowship, I was asked to join a three-person GI practice in Memphis. And that was back in 87, and and I'm still here. Back in 87, a three-person practice was probably a medium-sized practice. It was. Uh, It sure was. Um, So the last couple years with COVID has been a challenge for us all. But it's also represented an opportunity for practices to launch new initiatives and find new ways of caring for patients. Can you talk about some of the ways your practice has managed in the past few years, uh, including what you see as a future for telehealth? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, uh, telehealth, I think, was the biggest change that we had. A lot of us were not doing telehealth, and I really welcomed telehealth. I think a lot of our patients really welcomed it as well, and they uh, enjoyed not having to show up in the office, and of course, during COVID, to be in the office with, with uh, other patients uh, since they were trying to stay secluded um, because of the pandemic. But um, I think it's hopefully here to stay. The patients like it, the providers like it. Um, and uh, it's not for everybody. And some patients, as you know, need a physical exam and it's not appropriate for them. But if you can get the right patients um, in your telehealth program, I think it's really beneficial to all. I just hope that the insurance companies, after the government mandated a requirement to cover telehealth, expires that they will continue it. So I think uh, telehealth may be sort of in the hands of our payers and not our hands. Yeah, as as most things economic are, unfortunately. That's right. And the other thing I think uh, COVID made us do, and we were lucky in the South because we didn't have the restrictions uh, that most of the country had. We didn't have to do mandatory testing and so forth. So we really didn't have to do anything extra except masking um, and temperature checks and in the ASC, uh, mandatory air circulation times. But I think it made a practice more efficient. We had a concentration trade on flow issues, even uh, before the patient got to the office, made it accessible to do data entry and demographic entry by the portal or via their computers or by intakes through the phone. Uh, And then once they got to the office to try to streamline the flow. And I, I think those really made us more efficient and it also increased patient satisfaction. So I think that was a, a benefit also uh, of, of, of COVID that I don't think people realized they were doing, uh, but I think it helped, helped us mm-hmm. all. And we'll continue in the future for sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what's been your experience with mid-level providers? Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. Gastro One has been a little behind the curve on mid-level providers. Um, I think the mindset on some of the physicians that when somebody wants to see a subspecialist, they really want to see an MD. But I really think that has changed in our mindset and has really changed in a lot of the patient's mindset as well. They welcome mid-level providers. They want to be seen by somebody promptly. And again, with the GI shortage, uh, it's, it's hard to do that that. So uh, patients welcome being seen uh, in uh, a short time span, especially if they're having acute or subacute problems. I think 
the main thing with mid-level providers is that you have to sort of balance their responsibilities. And I've seen models on all ends of the spectrum where a doctor will only let mid-level providers uh, see routine colonoscopy consults where they just have to adjust anticoagulation or so, or just the easy follow-ups for refills. Then I've seen other models where uh, a gastroenterologist will spend all day in the ASC and basically all the patients being seen with mid-level providers. So I think that's a balance somewhere in between where you have to give independence to the mid-level providers, but still have a good one-in-one relationship between the sponsoring doctor and the provider to continue to give good patient care. Yeah, our, our practice in Chicagoland is, uh, I think, mirrors yours in that we've been slow to um, bring on mid-level providers, and we've just started doing that. Um, and I share some of the same concerns as you um, in terms of um, putting mid-level providers in situations where they may have more complex p- uh, patients and problems than they're really able to care for. Um, I recently came across a study that uh, looked at outcomes in a primary care practice, mm-hmm. comparing the outcomes and the level of uh testing done between mid-levels and physicians. And uh, there was no improvement in outcomes between the two, but the cost of care and the uh, and the testing was markedly increased in the mid-level providers. So yeah. I, I think we still need uh, work to do to um, find the right level of uh, engagement for our mid-levels. Yeah, I think that study was in my neck of the woods in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, in a right, big, uh, right. a yeah. big uh, multi-specialty clinic. And you're right. I think as medicine gets more involved, uh, we uh, with clinical protocols that we really need to develop to practice good care, uh, that may help that uh, overutilization issue. Uh-huh. Um, let's change gears a little bit. A few years ago, you provided the wine at a DHPA dinner. It was so good that people are still talking about it. In fact, several of us at that dinner, including me, have made a stop at Cornerstone Cellars while vacationing in Napa Valley. Tell us how you got involved in Cornerstone Cellars. Um, well, um, first, let me say I was going to offer for, for being on the show, I was going to say I have two maybe benefits. I feel like a salesman now. One, I offer free colonoscopy. The other one is if you come to Napa, I'll set you up for the great tasting at Cornerstone Cellars. And I think people will take me up on that one, hopefully. (laughs) Uh, But it actually is a GI story as well, how I got into Cornerstone Cellars. After I had uh, joined that practice, um, I went uh, I broke out and, and uh, started a solo practice in a different part of town that I thought was going to be and eventually was the growing part of Memphis. Um, and I was sharing call with a group of four physicians. And one of these physicians was a really, um, uh, he, he was a wine lover, enophile, knew about wines and was teaching me uh, to learn and appreciate wines. And this was back in 91. So this was, you know, 30, uh, 31 years ago. Um, and he was visiting uh, a one of the first cult winemakers in Napa named Randy Dunn and was having lunch with Randy. And Randy just made some off the cuff comment saying that he's going to have five extra tons of grapes uh, and he didn't know what to do with them. And uh, my friend who I was sharing call with, uh, 
called me. Uh, most of his other partners were Southern Baptists. They don't drink. So he, he came to me uh, and he uh, said, uh, you're learning about wine. Do you want to get into the wine business? Uh, we have this opportunity to buy these five tons of grapes, which made about 300 cases. And uh, he was th- this uh, Dunham Mountains was one of the greatest wines coming out of California and, and still is. So we knew we were getting good grapes. So I agreed to do it on the condition that it wouldn't just be a one and done. If we were going to go through the process of, of, of making a label and starting uh, a winery, if he could give us wine for a few years to get started. And it, the, it came out uh, and the first vintage of ours was one of the top 10 in the wine spectator for the Cabernets. And uh, it's still small, but it's grown a little bit from then. And it's very good, I I, I have to say. On Gastro Broadcast, we talk with a lot of guests who have passions outside of medicine and about how those passions benefit them in their careers. Has being involved in a winery benefited your career as an independent GI physician? Well, I think it has. A lot of my patients who know I'm in the wine business ask for a bottle of Cornerstone after they finish their colonoscopy. Um, and I'm working with insurance companies to get that as a paid <laughs> Very good. I'm coming to Memphis for my colonoscopy. <laughs> okay. Two years ago, you were the leader of a successful 30-person practice in the Memphis area and made the decision to partner with Private Equity and launched 1GI with a pretty strong physician-focused strategy. Um, Are there new services that being part of a multi-state entity um, enables you to consider or um, is it more of a back office kind of thing? No, I think uh, you you can't consolidate a name only. And our our philosophy, as you said, is physician focused. We have a strong medical leadership board that really determines all the clinical aspects and the clinical direction of of the physicians. We also have a very specific regional strategy that we really feel we want to grow in contiguous states uh, because that's where the payers are. in your neck of the woods, uh, I think Anthem Blue Cross services, Ohio and Kentucky. Down here, uh, we have several payers that cross state lines with Tennessee and Mississippi. So we, we have a regional focus. Uh, and as far as adding new services, part of it is just adding services that small groups don't have and can't have. Uh, a small group doesn't have the um, infrastructure or the uh, economics to have their own pathologist infusion, pharmacy, and research. And I think that uh, these are services that uh, need to be under uh, a gastroenterologist domain, especially as we move away from fee, uh, for service medicine into, into population health and value-based medicine. So we're adding existing services, but uh, there's new services coming. Uh, chronic care management is a service that people are um, uh, enrolling in now, which I think will have a great, will be a great service to our patients. Uh, and then we'll add more services depending on, you know, new technologies and as new things come out, artificial intelligence and so forth that are exciting things happening in GI. Um, independent groups are facing lots of challenges, including consolidation um, among the large hospitals in their service areas and rising costs. What advice do you have for independent groups that are considering options how not to just survive, but to thrive in the current environment? I think 
it's important for them to consider options not only to survive and thrive in the current environment, but I think more important to survive in the future environment, whatever that is. Uh, it's not going to be fee for service. At least they've been saying that for many years. Uh, uh, but whatever happens with value-based care, population, uh, health, uh, Medicare for all or whatever, um, we have to be prepared. And as you said, consolidation is happening among all the large hospital systems and all the payers. And historically, physicians have not uh, consolidated uh, or not of their own free will. So we really think that in order to maintain the numeric scale to have some leverage and clout uh, and get the data um, and the infrastructure to participate in large-scale programs with, with larger payers, you really need to plan now for when these things happen five to 10 years from now and not react, but uh, be uh, um, on the forefront and plan ahead. So uh, as as I said, we all believe that consolidation uh, is the way to be able to meet these challenges, uh, to participate and sit at the table with the systems. Mike, I know from my own practice, as well as hearing from others, the challenges private practices face in recruiting new physicians. What has been your experience? Well, uh, in Memphis, uh, the good side, we didn't have many restrictions during COVID. The downside is Memphis doesn't have the cachet or the economic stability as a lot of other cities. So we're, it's really harder to recruit in Memphis than than other places. And also with the predict, predicted GI shortage, you know that kind of just exacerbates that. Um, so it's been it's been a little hard, um, but I really think that uh, the new physicians are excited. Um, they have different expectations. And I think that's the biggest uh, change in my experience. They want more family time, the, the younger generation, probably for the better. Uh, you know, they, they more, want more lifestyle and it's probably healthier. They'll probably live longer. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, it's been a little different mindset uh, than the way we were recruited and our expectations uh, and goals when we went into medicine. We try to accommodate them. We have a program in our in Gastro One that, uh, for instance, uh, the spring and fall breaks vacation schedule is prioritized to doctors who have children in grade school, you know, elementary school that could spend some time. I don't ever get spring break uh, off or fall break off because I don't have those. Although we may have to modify that now that I have grandchildren. <laughs> I may want a, a spring and fall break to take with them. <laughs> For sure. Mike, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you very much for joining us on Gastro Broadcast. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.